Electric bicycles are my jam. I'm turning into a nut for a good e-bike. It's easy to get around, we save gas not driving our car for short trips to the store, and I'm getting a little extra exercise. The folks at Velotrick are sponsoring a series of videos on my channel to show off some affordable e-bikes and help people get up to speed. It's easier than you think, and prices have never been more competitive. You can catch those videos on my YouTube channel, but if you're interested in shopping an e-bike, head over to velotrick.bike slash some gadget guy and look at their road bikes and fat tires. Again, V-E-L-O-T-R-I-C dot B-I-K-E slash some gadget guy. Velatric dot bike slash some gadget guy. If any of those bikes look good to you, you can save an additional $60 off an already low price by using the coupon code SOMEGADGET60, SOMEGADGET60 at checkout. Once again, Velatric dot bike slash some gadget guy and coupon code SOMEGADGET60. And I thank Velatric for being a sponsor on this show. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, tech fans of all sh- shapes and sorts and sizes and per- persuasions. I forgot my intro. I'm trying to figure out. I'm still having some issues uh, <laughs> with what's going on um, with my audio setup. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Monday Morning Tech Chat Show on the SGGQA podcast channel. I'm Juan Carlos Bagnell, a.k.a. Some Gadget Guy, the SGG of this terribly named podcast series. But the QA is the really important part because... Today, we are going to chat a bit about some of these guys right here, like uh, maybe a OnePlus 12, or maybe a OnePlus, uh, drop all the stuff out of the box, 12R, or uh, maybe you're of a slightly different, you know, um, persuasion, and you're wanting to chat about a Redmi Note 13 Pro Plus, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about, and it was a crazy busy Crazy, crazy, crazy busy uh, week for news. Pro Plus. So um, this is going to be a, a pretty monster show, and uh, I'm, I'm really stoked to have y'all uh, come in and join. Uh, you pardon just a momentary, uh, just little bit of of confusion as I kind of look around. My setup is acting kind of weird. First of all. Um, Mic check. If if folks, I, I'm assuming folks can hear me okay. But also, secondly, I'm not sure this is properly streaming to Twitch. So if you're trying to catch us on the Twitch or there are any issues, um, try and try and let me know or drop a comment or something like that. So I'm just gonna keep going, and until I see something that says this is totally broken, um, then uh, I'm gonna assume that everything is five by five. So folks, uh, I want to start. We've got so much to get into and I really want to save a good chunk of the conversation a good chunk of the discussion for phones for the actual like experiences we have to talk a little bit about what it what the embargoes look like on some of these devices but we're we're able to start chatting out some of this stuff and then um there's a lot that we can answer while there's still some stuff that we can't quite show or talk about just yet so uh, we've got news, we've got, uh, a lot of Apple, uh, sort of centric news. And then I also need to make a very special plea, um, when we get through the news block just for, uh, some politics, uh, FCC and net neutrality news. There's a really important event that's kind of happening as we speak. And hopefully folks are game to participate 
and share and contribute to these conversations. It's sort of in the keeping of that sort of broad uh, net neutrality conversation that I, I'd also like to say, I hope everybody in the United States that if you have today off, um, you know, like I, I'm a freelancer who makes content on the internet. So kind of every holiday day is still a work day unless I decide to take it off. <laughs> but that I hope uh, folks are, are getting a little downtime for us. It's a three day weekend here in the United States to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I hope that, uh, you know, sort of folks in your communities or in your circles are taking some time just to kind of reflect on some of these historical figures and what they meant in the grand conversation about um, inequality and in uh, supporting disadvantaged communities and bringing people up and helping them and supporting them. So that is a figure that, uh, you know, for, for our household and the conversations that we have with our daughter is a very important historical figure for us to discuss what he really stood for and not just listening to a politician take five words out of his most famous and most well-known speech to then sort of twist what he stood for and what he represented. Okay, so there, I do see someone on the Twitch. Excellent. I just like, there's nothing but YouTube in the comments. So from the Twitch, Farhan is saying, greetings, everyone. My, it has been ages since I last joined live. Well, Farhan, I'm glad you could make it. And then I guess I could talk about all the other people on the inferior streaming side of this, uh, the YouTube. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of the YouTubes right now. But we've got Barry Johnson, Michael Corcoran, Malik, Jermaine, uh, uh, who am I missing? I'm missing Vazikos, Ghost Starscream, and Golan. I'm oh, and Scoop. Whew. I was going to say, man, I really thought we were going to miss some people there. Jman150 saying, "Hey, what's up? What's up, Jman150? We're we're back. Greetings. Hope we are all staying hydrated with some water. I am drinking coffee right now, but I do have." Uh, water at the ready. I'm not sure how well my voice is going to hold out for all of this. I got to say, like the last couple weeks, it's been real fuzzy. Um, I, I've been through a bevy of COVID tests. I'm, I haven't, I still have not gotten my first infection of COVID. We've been staying pretty strict with our regiment. And like, I went to Costco yesterday and I was in a pretty heavy duty mask because people are filthy. <laughs> but the, uh, the, uh, uh, sorry, that was a terrible joke at the expense of COVID rates actually on the rise right now. Um, but I did pick up a head cold over the holidays and man, it just makes you so weak. I have so much less, uh, endurance and, you know, I'm still trying to shoot out some videos or you're just recording something that's a little bit longer. You join a friend's podcast and then you're like, I guess I just won't talk tomorrow. So, um, that's enough me complaining about, uh, my health. Uh, Kaba Cash, also my favorite part of Monday. Thanks, thanks for jumping in. I'm, I'm actually really glad to see, uh, folks in this, uh, in this conversation. And again, this is, we're only a couple weeks into me not promoting on Twitter. So, uh, if you're inclined, especially while we're doing the live show, but even if you're catching this on the replay... Every share is greatly appreciated as we're all trying to rebuild our networks. Like what I used to just post once to Twitter now requires action on like Blue Sky and Threads and Mastodon and YouTube communities. Like it is so much more complicated to reach people and to let them know what's going on. 
So, uh, let me get this out of the way here. And get this out of the... Oh, Barry Johnson. I'm doing well, Simon. Just waiting for new phones to arrive. New phones like the OnePlus 12, maybe, Barry? Hmm? We're going to talk about this phone in just a bit. So... We got to get some housekeeping out of the way. Uh, last week was was kind of a return to form, just trying to get uh, get some work out there, uh, getting reviews and videos done. This has been particularly challenging, and I'm having a lot of conversations with uh, content review uh, content creators and tech reviewers. I keep wanting to call them content reviewers, um, content creators and tech reviewers, where. Man, we all got hammered coming into the end of last year. And if you're on a medium-sized YouTube channel, chances were pretty good that your stats were not kind of in keeping with the normal flow of what we expect from YouTube. And of course, January is all, always a bit of a, a drop. So folks are kind of uh, experiencing like, oh, wow, all of my stats have plummeted. All of my revenue has basically evaporated. And it's difficult to kind of keep that momentum as we're like getting out of CES and looking forward to MWC and there are all these really exciting launches and we've already had 2024 phones released in 2023 and that is completely changing up our cycle for how we talk about this stuff. So uh, I'm not outing anybody, but you gotta know, there are some phenomenal tech commentators who you probably watch and enjoy their content and they're not on 10 million subscriber channels and they're feeling pretty vulnerable right now. They're feeling pretty fragile. That kind of community support, that kind of backup is what really keeps folks going when you know that ebb and flow kind of hits. And when we don't have the same consistency in social media, like TK and I were talking all out TK is part of this conversation. TK and I were talking like you, you sort of took a certain momentum for granted when it was like YouTube and Twitter with a little Facebook, you know, that kind of social media we all understood. But like TK and I both have over 1,500 followers on threads. And anytime we post something that's just, hey, we think this is really cool. We want you to check it out. We get like two or three likes, maybe a share, mostly just two or three likes. If we do, hey, guys, iPhone is the worst. Am I right? (laughs) We'll get like dozens of likes and follows and tons of replies and there's arguments and Threads is already following the Facebook model of in where they are actively putting into their algorithm what makes you angry and miserable, what makes you hate your hobbies, and that's what seems to get engagement. The second I talk about something like Apple, we're going to be talking about Apple in a very sort of critical way in this podcast, but if I'm trying to point you to something that I think is just really cool and I'm having fun with... Nothing. The algorithm just tanks. But if I purposely do some low-hanging fruit to get Android and iPhone owners arguing against each other, boy, howdy, Facebook loves that. So I'm not not particularly thrilled (laughs) with the state of what we're doing. Like, social media is infecting your brain. And even for the folks in this chat, if you think you're immune to that kind of effect of marketing and algorithms... Chances are you aren't. Um, I, was, I was in a conversation with another content creator who I won't out, who was complaining like, oh, all I see are all of these posts about people and arguing and it's just so hateful and blah, blah, blah. So I go out of my way and like, 
I just saw this really terrible editorial, but instead of sharing this editorial and giving it more attention, I would prefer you watch this video from Content Creator. And the Content Creator was like, I endorse this! And then almost immediately after, that Content Creator just went on to post about other things that were annoying him and other dumb comments he got on YouTube and other sort of hateful arguments between Android and iPhone owners. And you're like... I bet if I point blank that guy, he'd say, oh, but this kind of marketing, oh, I'm immune to algorithms. You can't, can't get me to act in a toxic way. But that's what happened. Okay, so uh, just because we live in an age of social media rotting our brain doesn't mean that we always have to capitulate. It doesn't mean that we always have to support the platform that's making everything worse for everybody. All right. Uh, a bit of housekeeping. We've, we've got a bit of housekeeping to go through here. Let me uh, screen share real quick. This is from somegadgetguide.com. Xiaomi Hyper OS update, where an American tries to figure out what's different. And uh, it kind of looks the same. <laughs> I'm a big fan of, uh, of what Xiaomi has been doing, especially with camera tech. Like, my 13 Ultra has basically just become my my main production B camera. So I'm, I'm doing this live stream on a Panasonic, and I typically record when I'm in this position. I typically record to my Lumix uh, just for my main talking parts of the videos, but almost... I, I want to say this now started broaching more like 75% of all my B-roll was captured from this phone over the course of last year. Um, I, I really like what they're doing there. There was a big update. They're now running Android 14, and they've rebadged. So the skin that they have on top of their operating system was called MIUI, and now it's called HyperOS. All of these grand claims, these new animation engines, all of this hyper-connectivity between other gadgets and accessories. And if you're an American, like I am, it looks about the same. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't have a ton of Xiaomi accessories to test the connectivity, and a lot of what they're talking about in terms of gestures and animations are either app-specific, which can still be supported on MIUI-powered phones, or maybe it is like kind of a new twist on the way that they would animate something, but it still looks about the same. So as, as, a, as a, a less familiar American playing with a Chinese phone, uh, I, I had to put together a video just showcasing one. It's totally legit. If I've missed something, please like drop me a comment because that's hilarious um, whenever you can point out my fo- foibles. But two is also like I, I kind of had an emperor's got no clothes kind of moment. Like... All these videos, I saw these videos like, wow, and look at this, and it does this now, and it's all this really cool stuff. And most of it was just like, okay, well, that's just like a new way to pick your lock screen wallpaper. That's pretty, but I'm not seeing where this is fundamentally different. So, uh, I made a video about it. (laughs) Yeah, Farhan, I'm kind of feeling like a part of this is ecosystem building, right? This is the first step in, uh, not the first step, this is the next step in ratcheting down. Farhan says, HyperOS is basically MIUI for smart IoT devices. Similar to what Huawei did with Harmony OS, it looks the same as EMUI. But I still want to point out, a major claim was like new animation engine. 
when we updated Oxygen OS and Color OS, and OnePlus was like, hey, we're completely changing how everything animates. It was fundamentally different than older versions of Oxygen OS, and you could clearly see the Color OS influences. I'm not seeing that going from MIUI to Hyper OS. Okay, that, that's 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 nerdy enough. Uh, let me let me get back into uh, <laughs> let me get back into some housekeeping here. The other major video that uh, that we put out, Vivo X100 Pro versus X90 Pro, is it worthy of a one year upgrade? The highest honor, the 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 top award I can give a phone is that it is so improved, it is so good, that it is worth flipping a one-year-old phone to get this new phone. I think many of us in, this, in these comments would, would agree, it is exceedingly rare to see a year-over-year improvement. When we went from the Snapdragon HN1 to the HN2, I kind of felt like there was a bit more to offer consumers there to say, better battery life, uh, better thermal performance, better consistency, better gaming. You you could make a few more arguments for this one-year upgrade, flipping a one-year-old phone. This year is going to be really tricky because last year, in 2023, we had some of the best-performing phones in the history of me reviewing gadgets, like, going all the way back to, like, the days of iPack PDAs. 2023 was a really good year for performance and for, for SOC and for chipset and camera improvements. And this year is going to be kind of a challenge. But looking at the X100 Pro to the X90 Pro, there are some people out there. If they had an X90 Pro and they were looking at what uh, uh, MediaTek and Vivo were doing this year, that I could see the potential for a one-year upgrade. So you'd have to catch that video just to see what's going on. And of course, one of the things that we're going to be chatting about today, uh, my my review of the Redmi Note 13 Pro Plus, it went live. We had a morning embargo. I believe it was 3 a.m. Pacific time that uh, Redmi took the wraps off of this sort of global variant. This is another tricky thing because we're going to be talking about Redmi and OnePlus. Those phones have been out for a while. Like, if you wanted to, you could look up the specs on the the uh, the OnePlus 12 because the Chinese version is out. <laughs> so some of these questions, especially as how they pertain to like real world performance, I I'm happy to answer. Um, but I also like we we have these little sticky bits. If you're a Westerner and you like talking about some of these Asian brands, these Chinese brands. They seem to think that there's like a global conversation that is regimented and 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 like divided. You know, like Sony PR doesn't reply to me anymore because they think that I'm an American, so my audience must be like 93% American. Uh that's not the case. Uh, I like to talk about phones from all over the world and now we kind of have to play ball with, well, in this region the embargo goes at this date. And you're like, "Cool." But the phone's been out for like a month. <laughs> so it's uh, it's tricky. But in joining this conversation now, there is certainly some stuff we can chat about for the Redmi and for the OnePlus. Uh, 
Um, Farhan, I'm quite worried about Dimensity 9300 since there's no efficiency cores. Well, Farhan, I did publish my By the Benchmarks, and we ran the, 90, the Dimensity 9300 through some really tough tests. So um, you can also catch some of that conversation in that Vivo X100 versus uh, X90 Pro video because you have to talk about the year-over-year performance differences from the X90 to the X100. So uh, I will happily jump into some of those questions. I don't want to say I'm not going to talk about the Vivo X100 Pro, which is already shaping up to be one of my favorite phones of the year, and it's the second week of January. We, we can absolutely add that too, but I'm sure folks are going to have some questions and, and, and some comments and some, some opinions on what OnePlus is doing with the 12 and 12R. So um, let's jump in. Yeah, so uh, everything that we're going to be talking about, all of the the links, the show notes, the I mean, there was more housekeeping, but you can catch all of that on somegadgetguy.com and patreon.com slash somegadgetguy. Uh, I want to get into some snarky Apple news. I'm just going to take a quick sip of coffee here, and then uh, who feels will be able to trust the first rounds of reviews and videos on Apple's VR headset, the the Vision Pro mixed reality headset. D- drop a comment in the chat. <laughs> Man, I, I put out a, a, a challenge and everyone's like, moo. Jermaine came in hard though no no way I would Uh, Ghost Arscream saying not even going to bother watching them Uh, mini mini me is Uh, Simon says Hypno oh they will totally they will be totally un shilly Uh, (laughs) oh Jermaine yeah exactly more people should be bringing this up right now Again, we see what happens when you aren't praising Apple Ugg John Redinger. And I would highly recommend everyone catch John Redinger's video where he got blacklisted by Apple. It is not clickbait. That is very, it's a very um, frank peek behind the curtain as to how much these mega corporations uh, ratchet the conversation. How much influence they have over the conversation because no one wants to upset them. They all want to have access to the company and uh, you make the most money when you're already talking about something that's insanely popular because of all the marketing that the company spends on. So uh, John, I think very frankly, uh, discusses a major problem. In in a similar vein, I shared some thoughts about what it was like working uh, with Samsung when I was back at PocketNow and why that has very much soured my opinion of Samsung, even though I used to be a diehard Samsung knight. When you see how the sausage is made, it, it sort of it puts a sort of distasteful flavor in your mouth. But Apple is doing a pair of things that we're, we shouldn't be horribly surprised by. Uh, this is first up coming by way of Mac Rumors, written up by Julie Clover. Apple is carefully orchestrating Vision Pro reviews with multiple meetings. Uh, Apple is detailed, has a detailed plan for Apple Vision Pro reviews. According to Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, YouTubers and members of the media selected for reviews will meet with Apple on January 16 for a hands-on experience with a follow-up meeting to take place on January 23rd 
to go over the device's features a second time. This is taking two meetings. And I also kind of want to point out that uh, Mac Rumors is also starting to do the editorial thing that Apple has demanded of developers. So a follow-up story written up by Felipe Esposito uh, at 9to5Mac, Apple asks developers not to refer to their Vision OS apps as AR or VR. Now, I want you to see in the Mac Rumors article, Apple has a detailed plan for Apple Vision Pro reviews. And one of the things that Apple is mandating of developers is that you always refer to it as Vision Pro, not the Vision Pro. You ever notice how Apple does this thing where they try to like personify their gadget? They try to like make it an organic thing. It's not the iPhone, it's iPhone 15 is the best iPhone, right? You remove the article the and it somehow imbues this with some kind of other energy or personality or um, importance. The gravitas of Apple Vision Pro. But it goes further than that. If you're going to publish a, 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 a VR app for Apple's mixed reality headset, you can't do what I just said. You can't say it's mixed reality. It's spatial computing. Apple Silicon. You can't say Apple's, uh, Apple's mixed reality headset. It's Vision Pro. Apple's Vision Pro. Apple Vision Pro. It's this carefully cultivated language surrounding their ecosystem of products that psychologically uh, it, it, it illustrates how it's not that other inferior thing. It's the apple flavor. And it's so scummy. It's like so psychologically manipulative. And, and it's like taking marketing to like another level of social conditioning. And what do we see? we see this carefully manicured, cultivated conversation around their products on both de the developer side. If you want your, your Vision Pro uh, mixed reality or VR app to be approved by Apple, boy, howdy, you got to play by Apple's rules. You got to make sure you're, you're dotting all your I's and lowercase j's. But we're also seeing a very, very carefully manicured and selected process of allowing journalists and reviewers access to this headset. And uh, let me tell you, in my personal experiences of working with major uh, consumer electronics brands, when you start getting that granular, it's because you can't publicly show off the product. It really isn't ready for consumers to just jump on it, put it on, start doing some things with it, talk about it. It means you're selecting for the people who are most likely to help deliver the, the, the talking points and the messaging and the marketing that you, and I mean by you, I mean by Apple, that Apple hopes to see in the grand conversation. The person who is more likely to put this on their face and go, wow, this is the best. It's amazing. And then use all of the language that Apple mandates that they use. 
So we're going to see, uh, I, I believe we're going, going to see a first wave of Vision Pro videos that, and I want to play it like a bingo card, right? How many times do they say Vision Pro, spatial computing, um, do they ever mention mixed reality, virtual reality, augmented reality? Do they call it the Apple Vision Pro or is it Apple Vision Pro? Vision Pro is this and Vision Pro does that. Is, is it a thing, a proper noun? Is it a piece of consumer electronics? So for whatever you know issues I have with Facebook, <laughs> the Oculus team at least doesn't ratchet their developers this bad. And I don't know any company could get away with this level of influence over journalists and reviewers, this level of manicured um, assistance in talking about their products. It's... It's shocking, and I, I don't understand how people in the tech space can look at this influence from Apple, hear stories from, from guys like John Redinger, and again, if you get a couple of YouTube reviewers off the record, you suddenly get this cult-like conversation about Apple. I had one guy telling me, like, oh, they walk us into this room, and then they've got all of these people who are so on excited talking about how great it is to be a part of the Apple family with like these big super plastered smiles on their faces. And if you're not matching their energy, they start to get really, um, they start to get really weird around you. (laughs) So I, 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 um, I very much expect uh, we'll probably start seeing some trickle of commentary again coming out the end of January. And then we'll see like an embargo lift where videos can start par- properly being published in early February when this is uh, expected to launch. Um, Apple's VR headset or mixed reality headset, the Vision Pro, is, uh, is going to be a very divisive topic. And for me, and I hate saying it like this, but I kind of feel it needs to be said, I kind of hope corporate virtual reality fails. I'm really disappointed in the tech press where they've been slamming all AR and VR for over 10 years since the launch of Google Glass. Nothing has been good enough. Everything is too expensive. Consumers won't like it. Gotta wait. You gotta wait for something polished. And I really feel like virtual reality kind of needs to slink back into the shadows and be an enthusiast gadget for a while. Um, It's kind of like the hype that we saw over 3D printers. There was a documentary on Netflix. I love revisiting that documentary because watch that documentary and just every time someone talks about a 3D printer, replace it with virtual reality. And it's the same hype. It's the same investor BS. It's the same rug pull kind of investment strategy. And now... 3D printing has kind of slunk back into the enthusiast space, and it's getting so much better. It's getting better as people who are just passionate about 3D printing are playing with 3D printers. And we're not promising consumers a future of disruptive technology, and you'll print everything. You won't have to worry about going to stores to buy parts for your IKEA furniture. That, that That didn't happen. (laughs) So with Microsoft pulling out of virtual reality, the consumer space, not not the military contractor um, government space, but Microsoft pulling out, 
Um, Oculus not getting the credit they deserve in selling more Quest headsets, I think, than are out there in the wild uh, against Xbox consoles. Someone please correct my math, but from Quest 2 to Quest 3, I believe, if it's not, if they didn't oversell, if they didn't beat Microsoft, I think it's nearly the same quantity. What exists in VR right now is a headset that is rivaling a game console, a major Microsoft game console launch. And the entire tech press is acting like VR has been this horrific failure and that only Apple can save it because that's what they depend on for clicks and views and monetizing and so that they always have access to Apple executives and Apple products. But I would say launching a niche product like a VR headset at the scale of an Xbox console is an incredible success. I don't know anyone who would say, here, here is a single purpose gadget for viewing special kinds of video and playing certain kinds of games. And the game library is nowhere near as good as like a Nintendo Switch or a PlayStation 5 or an Xbox. And yet, sales of quests are rivaling sales of Xboxes. Vision Pro is going to sell 100,000 units over 2024 because we literally can't make more of the components to put into this headset. We literally can't fulfill a higher demand on these 4K micro OLEDs and not have, you know, defects and issues and like, you know, dead pixels and stuff. And 100,000 Vision Pros are going to be treated, excuse me, 100,000 Apple mixed reality headsets are going to be treated like the savior of VR, where 15 million Oculus Quests are out there. Oh, oh, VR is in such despair. How can you not look at that and think, oh yeah, this is a totally fair representation, completely non-biased. The, the, the game is, is totally open. It's not rigged at all. <laughs> Hey, podcast listeners, I work really hard to find mutually beneficial ways to support production on my various distribution platforms. Instead of just running ads on this podcast and hoping they don't annoy you, I want to find products or services that you really will get something out of and that can help fund my production. While I do talk about some of those items in ads throughout this podcast, I've never created one easy-to-view master list of my current partnerships until now. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. If you'd like to help contribute, support production of this podcast and my various videos and reviews, head on over to SomeGadgetGuy.com. At the top, there's going to be a link for Support Some Gadget Guy, and you can see what my current partnerships are. At the time this podcast was recorded, in addition to my Patreon, we can hook you up with a $10 voucher for shopping a new OnePlus, save 20% on some one more headphones, sign you up for Google Fi service, Amazon affiliate links, Audible, or you can grab a Mega Pickle coffee mug of your very own. Mmm, mmm, savory, delicious Mega Pickles. Head on over to SomeGadgetGuy.com, support banner on the top right-hand side of my website, and hopefully you find something cool, something you like, while also kicking me a little extra scratch. All right, so we got one other Apple uh, story that I, I, I feel we need to cover. Um, this one, of course, Ars Technica, not written up by John. This is Dan Goodin. I like Dan's work, too. 
But um, th- this this isn't this isn't to just chuckle at at Apple and pat ourselves on the back for not using Apple. I've regularly talked about Apple abusing standards for their own benefit. They take an open standard like Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or NFC, and then they slather a whole bunch of proprietary stuff on there, and they break interoperability with other devices. So Apple can use Bluetooth as a trigger for AirDrop, but I can't send an iPhone a file because Apple doesn't support, support Bluetooth file transferring. So if I take an awesome photo on my Android, I have to email an iPhone owner the photo or send it through some kind of cloud link and then they can download it from that link. And that makes my Android look like it can't do something basic when really it's the iPhone that is broken interoperability for file transferring. Same thing with MTP support on Macs. Same thing with NFC support on iPhones. It's locked to one specific type of transaction, and it's and that transaction is locked to Apple's um, Apple Pay. It makes other things look broken, but really, Apple has done the damage. Apple has reduced the functionality. And so whenever we look at that proprietary add-on, that proprietary label of Apple, uh, that proprietary level of Apple ecosystem being attached to a proper standard, we need to be very critical if something goes wrong. Apple AirTags is a very good example of taking Bluetooth, using it as some kind of trigger for location tracking, and then not making that safe for people on older iOS devices and on Android devices and on Windows devices and Amazon and everything else. Apple did not do their due diligence in manipulating a standard and everybody else had to suffer for it. We still don't have Android trackers because Google was now put into the position of, well, we can't make the same mistake Apple did. I guess we need to fix this. And now we're still waiting for Apple to fix this. I put in an order for Bluetooth location trackers over the summer, back in June from Chipolo and Pebblebee. I still can't to tell you my experiences in using an Android-based location tracker because Apple is holding the market hostage. Sorry, I went soapboxing. You've all heard me complain about that stuff before. The newest one is we need to make sure our family and friends are made aware that all of these promises of privacy and security from Apple are basically just marketing. There is nothing special about an iPhone. There is no magic applesauce that makes your iPhone more secure than an Android. It literally does not exist. Case in point, if you're traveling internationally, you really should be concerned about how you use AirDrop. Uh, This is from Ars Technica, written up by Dan Gooden. Apple AirDrop leaks user data like a sieve. Chinese authorities say they're scooping it up. Chinese authorities are exploiting a weakness Apple has allowed to go unfixed for five years. (laughs) Five years! Five years of AirDrop basically just leaking out a whole bunch of, of user data. Um... Uh, one of the article uh, paragraphs later in the article, Apple put on put on notice takes no action. 
Green noted that given the resources available to the Chinese government, it's easy within its means to pre-compile a list of hashes for every phone number in that country. Compiling hashes of email addresses would be harder, but still possible. Then, when investigators encounter an illegal airdrop transmission, they can compare the hash of the sender to the ones on the list. When there's a match, the investigators will finger the phone or email address of the sending party. So this is obviously more of a concern when we talk about how the Chinese government has started cracking down on their citizens' ability to send and spread information. Like they kind of want a glimpse into everything that they're doing on their phones. And some of the more secure uh, elements of AirDrop have actually been watered down because of the Chinese government's influence over Apple's business practices. This is still a concern. The AirDrop protocol is not buttoned up. It is not secure. And parts of this are still accessible if someone wanted to create some kind of exploit or some kind of uh, a snoop into what people are doing on their iPhones, this is another vector of attack. <laughs> this is another potential area of, of abuse. And we should not be surprised that when it comes to these protocols that start engaging with wireless signal transmission, we've seen so many issues with Apple devices. Don't forget, I mean, like it was the flipper. You can mimic another Apple product, send a barrage of requests, and then that can cause an iOS device to crash. I believe that's been fixed in the most recent uh, iOS patch. But that means someone has to be fully up to date. And I'm sure that there are a bunch of, of uh, hobbyist hackers in gray hats that are looking at like, well, now that we know that this flipper thing ex exists and we can crash iOS devices... Uh, what else can we do with Bluetooth? Because Apple apparently doesn't have this locked up as tight as they advertise their privacy and their security. It's very frustrating because you share a story like this and you get a whole bunch of people just sort of patting themselves on the back for not living in China. And, and you're like, you're missing the point. You're missing the point that Apple isn't really doing their due diligence in living up to their own marketing standard. And that, unfortunately, creates a conversation around Apple products where consumers are mostly informed by marketing. Think about every major news publication that will have an Apple executive on to talk about something controversial just to let them repeat all of their main talking points, and that goes completely unchallenged. If you don't believe me, look at the interviews that Craig Federici did when uh, we were talking about iPhones scanning for CSAM. No one challenged the Apple executives into how this was a terrible idea. That idea was a terrible idea. Having the phone snoop on your data and send that information up. Oh, I mean, it's totally secure. None of this is totally secure. <laughs> you don't want your phone reporting on you to the government or having a giant hole in your messaging that someone could exploit to then see what you're doing on your phone. There, 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 there is no... There, there is no win there. But if you, I've posted this on both Mastodon and on threads. I got a bunch of people, no, AirDrop is fine. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you should really be concerned about how you use Apple products and how you talk to people in your family about using Apple products. It's, it's, it doesn't get viruses. Macs don't get viruses. <laughs> I'm exaggerating a little, but I'm not exaggerating a lot. Um, it's pretty gross. 
And, and there is a huge, huge issue with consumer education when they basically get all their talking points from the manufacturer. I'm going to take another drink of coffee here. Let's see if we've got some comments on this one because I kind of went like hard on the screen here. All right. For, oh, before we jump into the comments, uh, here, let me click on this. Uh, one Mr. Fat Produce has gifted Tier 1 subs to Muppinish, Puppet Jared, Last Divine, Coppa Cash, and Vince Novoa. Andrew, Fat Produce, thank you so much. That is amazing. I, I very much appreciate the support and uh, all, all of the contributions and helping to keep this shambling podcast uh, streaming week after week. Uh, this one is for you, a fanfare of glory, as courtesy of one Mr. Barry Johnson, who hooked me up with a stream deck. Thank you, buddy. I really appreciate it. All right. Uh, let's see. Oh, okay. That's good. Ron Guido says the CIA says, says it's all good. You don't, no, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry at all. If, if AirDrop is completely insecure and can leak your personal data and your info... CIA's got you covered. Don't worry about that. <laughs> um, hold on. I'm, I'm going to scroll back up. Uh, let's see. Oh, West is asking, do I have any opinions about Apple products? That's a very good question, Wes. Um, I think they're totally average things that don't do anything special. Like, it, they're just sort of basic computer things. And at this point... Uh, if, if you want products that do different things or specialize in a certain way, then you can find them. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, Vasicos, uh, getting back to Apple and their marketing. You are not being excited enough. We want big Apple energy. Think of all the views that you get. See, and isn't that the, the, the best part of this? So if Apple gives you a content creator special access, they're not going to pay you, right? They're not going to sponsor a video, and we don't have to have any of those clumsy FTC announcements regarding sponsorships or payments or anything. So it looks totally legit. These are just my earnest thoughts about the company. But that's not what gets that content creator monetized. There's a huge financial incentive to be one of the first to handle an Apple product. And then you get tons of traffic on YouTube. And then you get tons of interest from other sponsors and other marketing agencies and other advertisers. And the YouTube algorithm bumps you up so your videos get more and more views. And it's a cyclical occurrence. The more you get early access... The more YouTube prioritizes your channel, the bigger the financial incentive is for you. So you don't have to go out there and say, this video is sponsored by Apple, and Apple paid me to say something nice about them. And everyone can act like that means your opinion is, is unbiased or, or uninfluenced, even though we know they're going through multiple meetings to help you spread the word and use the right words to talk about their products. And it just looks so much more organic and honest. And it's not. 
the real financial incentive is not getting a one-off payment from a brand to tackle a product and do a sponsored video. The real financial incentive is, did I get early access to something that the YouTube algorithm is going to blow up on my channel? And then I make so much more money. <laughs> and it's, it's funny that we see sort of a consistent trend in the types of content creators who have that real close relationship with Apple and how big their channels become because of that kind of, uh, of, that kind of relationship. Completely organic. There's, there's nothing untowards happening. Not at all. <laughs> oh, Ron Guido was out shoveling the snow. I'm glad he's he's here. I'm glad he's he's hanging out. Um, Michael Corcoran, who is blindly loyal to Google, Team Pixel, I guess, but that barely registers on the algorithm. I, I mean, even when we have those kinds of Team Pixel conversations, I, I think there are a lot of folks that are just like, "Hey, cool! I love playing with Pixel phones. Awesome, 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 awesome." Then you get a whole bunch of older nerds like me, and it's like. I love what this division in Google is doing, but I have severe reservations about how YouTube and search and the executive levels are handling this kind of corporate side of Google. You rarely find that same kind of exact split in the hardcore Apple fandom conversation, where if I bring up something like the insecurity in Bluetooth, the uh, how features are minimized, and an Apple fan is like, oh, I can totally criticize Apple, but I won't because I don't see anything wrong with what they're doing. That's the kind of pushback you typically get. Team Pixel guys are out there like, yeah, I wish I had video out, or I really hate that it doesn't do this, or I miss having headphone jacks and memory card slots. It's like, it, it's like you can really love and appreciate the divisions that are doing cool work within Google, but it's sort of so much more accessible to find the people that like, I love the pixel as a phone. I wish it was a better computer. <laughs> and, and Simon says, no, in that too, is it's not locked up. Simon says, I see team pixel folks enjoying other devices from other brands too, like the new OnePlus 12 that we're going to be talking about in just a bit. Um, let's see. Oh, Simon says, Hypno says, the Vision Pro will end up removing some of the woolly backs jumping on the trend initially. Uh, what is Vision Pro? Is that the mixed reality headset coming from Apple? The one that does VR and AR and has cameras built into it? Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not spatial computing. It's mixed reality, I think is what it's called. Um, so, so yeah, mixed reality is where you have a VR headset and you put cameras and sensors in the headset so you don't need to put satellites up in your room. That's mixed reality. And any headset that does that is a mixed reality headset. We've already agreed on all of these terms. So I guess, is, is that what it is? The mixed reality headset from Apple that does VR and AR apps? I think that's what it's called. <laughs> oh, geez, we got a bunch of folks talking about like, like Samsung astroturfing and people leaving comments on pixel videos. I'll, I'll have to skip over some of that. <laughs> um, oh, JGJ saying, I hear the drum roll now on the fanfare. Excellent. I have no idea. So I still, my audio setup here is broken um, where I can't hear what I play or like feedbacks in a weird way. So I still have to work out like, whether or not I'm getting the levels right on all of this. I should have prefaced, like, I hope I didn't blow out anyone's ears. <laughs> I'm doing the fanfare from uh, Andrew, uh, hooking up people with tier one subs on Twitch. 
Uh, <laughs> uh, hold on, let me get another drink of coffee and then we can uh, wrap up the news block here in just a bit. Oh, Jermaine, nothing special, but seen as something special. I mean, the, I want to, I want to, let, let's clarify. Apple makes good products. Apple doesn't make anything special. Um, the closest I've been to kind of appreciating Apple being somewhat disruptive in the market was, uh, it is Apple Silicon. So their ARM processors it's not special because they put a name on Apple Silicon. They're using an ARM SOC, which validates my talking points years before. I was at Newegg and I did videos on ARM laptops because I feel there's plenty of compute power in a phone, put it in a laptop chassis and people would be happy with an inexpensive laptop. Um, ARM is the way of the future for consumers. It just is. The power, the price to performance, everything is just so much better. So I appreciate that Apple has helped disrupt our common idea of Intel or AMD as the only solutions in portable computing. There's nothing special. Like, there's nothing magic. These are computers with software on them. And sometimes they do some things really, really well. And often they have the same kinds of privacy and security issues that any other computer will have. And that, to me, has become the most toxic aspect of this conversation. The us versus them, the gamesmanship. Is it like your favorite sports team? We now have journalists that won't go after Apple because they're afraid of losing access to Apple. There's no criticism of the brand. And it's seen through that lens, which then informs North American consumers that there's really no other option. And if you want things to just work, it just needs to just work. And that's a really bad place to be. If, we're, if we can't properly criticize Apple products for fear of losing out on tons of revenue for our publication, then the, the game is over. The game is done. And we're dead. Like, everything that we appreciate or love about this hobby is gone. Um... <laughs> oh, sorry, Jermaine. Stop being so mean with showing the best color of the OnePlus 12. I am jealous. <laughs> Al Sabakli, oh, you got the OnePlus 12. Very interested to hear what you have to say about it. Um, Simon says, no, how does Vision Pro feel on the head? <laughs> how does it feel on the hands? No, you're going to get someone who picks up a Vision Pro and comments on how much more uh, nice it is. It's, it's so, so much more premium because of these heavy materials. And it's got a whole extra screen on the front of it that adds heat. But it feels so nice in the hand. Like, you really want to pick up Vision Pro because it feels really nice in the hand. It doesn't feel lightweight and plasticky like other VR headsets because this is a spatial computing headset. Vision Pro is not VR. And I don't want heavy, hot things on my face. <laughs> Pause. Um, <laughs> I want lightweight and durable. I want breathable materials. I want things that can balance a battery without being so heavy you need to offset the battery and put it on a soap on the rope cable. I don't want travel headphones that are hot and insulate and pool sweat and are really heavy on my head. 
I want travel headphones that are lightweight and plastic and, and feature great battery life and can collapse, fit in a backpack. I feel like these tech commentators are going, especially for people who have never shown an interest in VR or AR in the past, but it's Apple now, so now it's worth talking about, are going to pick up Vision Pro and go, oh, but it feels so nice in the hand. You really want to, like, like interact with, and, like, the click dial and the buttons and how everything feels has nothing to do with the VR experience, has nothing to do with a good mixed reality experience. And often, if you really do spend some time in a mixed reality headset, you don't want those things. I don't want tightly attached goggles that might fog because the heat disparity, like right now, we're in a bit of a, a cool snap. You know, it's like, it's getting down into the low 30s here in California at night. And even right now in my office, I'm wearing a hoodie because I'm trying not to just run my heater like crazy. All of that kind of contributes to a conversation about what is the real practical use of something like a VR headset? And when it gets to be 110 degrees out here in the valley over the summer, that's another situation where I'm not going to want a metal enclosed ski goggle with an outer display, which also contributes to power draw and heat. That is not something I'm looking forward to in talking about some kind of wearable visual system. So anyway, um... Oh, cake batter. Oh, I mean, come on. This is, this is, a, this is a given. Um, cake batter says, we are going to see the same journalists that hated the discomfort of 3D glasses praise the comfort of Vision Pro. And, and all of those same journalists will have savaged HTC for making an expensive headset. Well, I mean, the, the Valve Index, it's really high fidelity, but they're so out of touch with consumers making a $1,000 headset. But they'll, they'll trip over themselves to praise the $3,500 public beta dev kit, which is Apple's mixed reality headset. I'm not going to call it Vision Pro. It's Apple's mixed reality headset. <laughs> uh, let me get this out of the way here. We do have one more, oh no, we've got two more stories. I'm sorry, this one's gonna be pretty quick because I'd really like you to read. This is the first time I've, I've seen uh, this Proton uh, blog. This is from uh, Richie Koch, I believe is how you pronounce that name. Uh, Big Tech has already made enough money in 2024 to pay all of its fines from 2023. Uh, published January 8th on Proton.me, uh, the blog from Richie. Last year, big tech companies Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, and Microsoft received about $3 billion in fines for breaking laws on both sides of the Atlantic. As of seven days and three hours into 2024, they have already earned enough revenue to pay it all off. Now, I, I do want to point out, just, just to play devil's advocate here for Richie, that's not profit, just revenue. But they have made enough money in revenue to pay off all of their huge record-breaking fines from 2023. We've, we've pointed this out on numerous stories in the past where company does something terrible, something that earned them billions and billions of dollars, and something that has hurt the economy and hurt you know, the private information of regular people and has caused lots of distress... 
and they get like a $50 million fine. They totally know not to ever do that ever again because out of you know $10 billion in revenue, they had to pay like five whole million dollars to a class action settlement. They've learned their lesson for sure. I'm sure they have. It took seven days for these companies to generate the revenue to cover all of those fines. I will not be impressed with fines until we start seeing percentages of revenue. <laughs> hey, if you violate this uh, GDPR regulation and you compromise user data, that's 10% of your yearly revenue. If you don't want to have to worry about your business model getting hit with those kinds of fines, I think the best way to guarantee that your business model doesn't engage in that kind of business practice is not selling off all of your users' data. Find some other method of revenue. <laughs> I'm getting like increasingly aggro about, well, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? Why do you need to track all of that user data? You know what? You have to keep all of that user data safe. Well, the best way to keep that data safe is not collecting it in the first place. <laughs> Maybe you need a completely different idea of how revenue should be generated on your platform. So Richie has like an actual breakdown here and links and and uh, he did a lot more research. I'm actually not sharing screen sharing this right now because this is a smaller personal blog that is really well researched. And I would prefer you go and check out Proton.me. Big Tech has already made enough money in 2024 to pay all its 2020 all its 2023 fines and. Uh, on first glance, it's like, man, you know, this is really demoralizing because it feels like we're working so hard to get governments to start applying new methods of regulation and new laws to a space that has been woefully under scrutinized. But on the other hand, it is this kind of uh, discourse that helps us plan or it helps illuminate what are the challenges. You see, like, wow, $3 billion in fines over the last year. And the numbers are getting so comically large that our evolved primate brains struggle to conceptualize the differences. Like, wow, three billion, that sounds like a lot. But Apple generates like 40 billion in revenue every quarter. And I'm probably underestimating because I'm just guessing. And trying to conceptualize 40 billion in my brain is impossible. So uh, proton.me, check out the blog and also kind of share some of that information because the last thing that we're going to cover here as we wrap up the news blog, um, the folks at fight for the future reached out to me on Instagram. And I have to admit, I, uh, I have completely forgotten to follow up on something that was a really important story closing out 2023. We finally installed a new chairperson in the FCC. We can finally vote on better policy through the FCC. It's not gridlocked anymore. The FCC has been gridlocked for almost the entire Biden presidency. So now we can finally start the process of fixing all of the terrible things that the Trump administration did under Ajit Pai. And unfortunately, because 
it seems that if you're on the left side of this conversation, you still sort of appreciate playing by the rules instead of just making some kind of terrible unilateral action and ignoring all of the whims of the populace. We're going to go through the entire process of validating net neutrality again. Net neutrality took a decade in, in legal action, in courts, in policymakers, in uh, Tom Wheeler's FCC, into the Obama presidency. It took 10 years to put together a really low-level reactionary protection of internet traffic for consumers. And Edupi undid it all in a year. And now we're going to have to rebuild all of that. And it's not that we're starting from scratch, but people are so exhausted by this conversation and batting this ping pong ball back and forth. If a conservative gets elected, they're going to gut net neutrality because it's terrible for people, but it's great for businesses. And then whack the ping pong ball back. And if a liberal is elected, then we're going to start trying to get it reinstated because it is better for people. And it's actually really good for businesses, but conservatives are kind of dumb when it comes to net neutrality policy. Fight for the Future hit me up on Instagram. (laughs) They were like, hey, we saw that you mentioned net neutrality like a month ago. You know, public comments are happening right now. Right now, as we speak, the FCC is asking for public comments on net neutrality. They will be asking for public comments through this Wednesday. So we've got a day and a half to contribute comments to support net neutrality. And I completely spaced following up on the FCC's uh, requests for comments. I mentioned it back when they started pushing through the plan. They did it really quickly after they got their, their, uh, their chairperson installed. When the FCC gridlock finally broke... They moved immediately into public uh, in, into announcing plans to restore net neutrality. The folks at fightforthefuture.org. Um, first of all, I would just check out this site because there's a lot of other things on here that they are active in uh, commentary on, like uh, facial recognition programs, internet bills, uh, uh, broadband distribution. Um, they're always asking for donations or they've got merch that you can buy to help support the cause. But the other thing that they've done that is critically important, if you go to www.battleforthenet.com, you'll see we have one day and 13 hours to contribute comments supporting net neutrality and send this to the FCC. If you do not want to go through the FCC's comment page, this is a very easy way. They've streamlined the ability to submit a comment to the FCC. You have to put in your your name and address and zip code, but then they have a comment that's ready to go if you don't feel like you want to write a comment from scratch. I will probably contribute to this, um, but this is straightforward to the point and, and helps put a vote in favor of supporting net neutrality. So this is from battleforthenet.com. I strongly support the FCC's current effort to reinstate net neutrality and Title II authority, which is critical for an open internet, expanding broadband access, privacy protections, and public safety. The agency must move forward a strong rule that rejects zero rating, ensures carriers don't use interconnection to violate net neutrality, and allows states to add their own protections. Simple and straightforward. 
If you'd like to add more to that, you totally can, but if you wanted to, you could completely streamline this, submit your comment, and be done with it, but knowing that you are contributing to this conversation. If you don't contribute to the conversation, then other people, who you probably don't agree with, are going to do it for you. (laughs) You can't escape this, like, oh, I'm so above politics, I just like to hang out and talk about tech. Well, then other people will do things that you don't like. If you don't participate at some level, then you are irrelevant, and then other companies and corporations just get to use you. For example, we can all shrug our shoulders at conversations about privacy, right? Oh, the second you pick up a smartphone, it doesn't even matter anymore. They want you to feel exhausted and that there's no way for you to reclaim some privacy or some agency over the tech that you use. You will lease everything and you will enjoy it. You will let everyone snoop on your behavior and you will enjoy it. You will let corporations profit off of your behavior and not cut you in for a taste. But when the FTC broke down what our internet service providers really track on us, it was horrifying. It was shocking. FTC published a report, I want to say now it's getting on almost two years, detailing how invasive ISPs are and how they sell off all of that data to brokers. They can easily fingerprint you on almost anything you use to connect to the internet. And that's why it's important to bring up things like, uh, you know, going through, it's not enough to use an incognito tab, maybe you should consider using a VPN. All of these different things, it's not just, are you doing something illegal on the internet? Every aspect of, of your internet connection is being monitored by your ISP to profit off of your behavior. And the FTC recommended that we start empowering agencies like the FCC to better rein in and regulate that kind of behavioral data abuse. It got to the point where you could easily fingerprint the cell phones on uh, the Secret Service agents detailed with protecting the President of the United States. It's getting horrifically toxic. It's getting really bad. And if we don't start walking back some of these abuses that occurred during the Trump administration under Ajit Pai and restoring the power and the confidence of the FCC as an organization within the federal government to apply the most basic of consumer regulatory protections, then we are lost. We cannot let the EU do all the heavy lifting for us. (laughs) (laughs) Like, at some point, the United States regulators are also going to have to get involved into the terrible business practices of all of these massive corporations that are responsible uh, for or act as middlemen in between uh, users and the services that they want to interact with. Net neutrality is like the most basic, simplistic, and the easiest way just to get in and give us some teeth in this fight. And it's highly reactionary. Like, you have to demonstrate a tangible harm coming from uh, an ISP or a corporation to start the ball rolling on some kind of corrective action when it comes to net neutrality. But if we have nothing, then we get nothing. (laughs) If we have zero, then there's no recourse when companies do terrible, terrible things. I don't believe that this would be the situation that would occur uh, immediately here. But one of the examples that um, they sent, uh, Fight for the Future sent me, was the recent story we covered of Twitch leaving South Korea. 
one of the reasons why Twitch is leaving South Korea, not the only reason, because we also know Amazon has not been a very good uh, steward for a lot of gaming and uh, a lot of streaming uh, content creators. Um, but one of the reasons why Twitch is leaving South Korea is because of the way that South Korea allows for, uh, how do they phrase it? Actually, I think I might have their article up. Oh, sending party pays. That's what we're talking about. So South Korea does not have any kind of regional or federal countrywide net neutrality policy. So if you have a very popular service like Twitch, and Twitch is a lot of bandwidth, that's a lot of streaming video, then the organizations that run their, their telecommunications infrastructure can say, well, I mean, you're already paying us this much per megabit, but now you need to pay us 10 times more because we said so. It's like, oh, you're, you're a trucker? Well, gas normally costs $5 a gallon, but just for you, because you drive more, we're going to charge you 15 Well, I mean, but that's totally fair. You're using more gas, so you should pay more, right? And you're like, yeah, I'm using more gas, so I am paying more. I'm buying more gas. No, 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 no. Not only are you buying more gas, but you should pay more per gallon of gas because you're buying more gas. And bandwidth doesn't really work like gas, but it's a terrible metaphor that we seem to have to come up with these terrible metaphors just to kind of express some of the inequity so that other people can understand why net neutrality is kind of a big deal. We went through this with the interconnectivity fees when it came between Netflix getting throttled by Verizon. We've got to play and make sure that we've got a roadmap. Right now, the only thing that's kind of holding some of these companies in place are New York and California. New York and California have very strict net neutrality uh, regulations on the books. And they're kind of keeping a lot of these players in check because you don't want to have to go state by state by state by state coming up with different rules in every state you do business. So a federal standard would at least just give us that low-level protection, and then it doesn't matter. You've at least got something basic across the entire country to make sure that things don't happen like they are in other countries like like in South Korea. So I, I, a huge thank you to the folks at Fight for the Future for putting this back on my radar. I really appreciate the conversation. Um, and, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here in a big way for some of the folks that are, are talking about um, just sort of equitable business on the internet. But again, I want to highlight, and I'll put the screen share back up. Um, we, we have a day and a half help spread the word, give it a tweet, give it a boost, give it a bump, give it a thread, give it a mastodon, I don't, all the different things that platforms that we can share. Uh, battleforthenet.com. www.battleforthenet.com. Put in some information. We've got until January 17 to add a comment to support net neutrality and to, re, and to undo some of the damage and the harm that came from Pie's FCC. This is the first step in getting our government back into working order in making sure that we've got equitable policy for broadband distribution, that we're reclassifying broadband to be adequate speeds for a future economy, that we're not letting these corporations just write all of the laws for us. This is a first step. It's going to be so much more work. It's going to be so difficult getting to better policy. But if we don't make this step, then other then the corporations get to come in and just wreck us. And that's 
not what we would want to see. <laughs> DTNL. One, many metaphors, Bagnell. I, it, it, it's so, it, we make jokes about it, but it's like, since the Jesse Helms, oh, the internet's a series of tubes, like trying to get people to understand why this is as bad as it is, is so difficult. And like, you've got to lean on, well, it's like if you're buying gas, it's not like if you're buying gas, it's not how the internet works, but I need you to understand that it's unfair. (laughs) Just a quick interjection here, folks. I love highlighting good work and talented people, producers and writers who deserve more attention. So here's a quick word from someone making cool stuff on the internet. And I hope you check out what they have to offer. Juan, thank you for the honor of having me on your podcast to kind of let everybody know that I do what's called Engineer Reacts. I react to smartphones, and you can find these reactions at www.youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Barry Johnson. I do about one to two video reactions per week, all on smartphone tech. Also, in addition to this, I'm actually going to start posting on Easy Computer Solutions channel as well as he just has so much product that he tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, I need a little bit of help over there as well. So again, Juan, I appreciate it and hope you have a great rest of the podcast. Brian Glaze, if anything, I should get a discount on gas for buying more. (laughs) Well, yeah, because that's often how a lot of businesses work. Um, Hold on. Uh, Michael Peppertech, someone said Michael had a good question. Let me get this here. Is the policy to disallow the monopolization of ISPs for apartments in certain neighborhoods coming back into this discussion as well? I'm sick of being stuck with Spectrum when others are a block away. I could get fiber through AT&T with gigabit bidirectional speeds for what I pay if it wasn't for Spectrum paying to be the only option. We, Excuse me, I just burped on the mic. Um, we did talk about this a my brain is such such swiss cheese we 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 covered the initial discussion of that months ago i don't know how many months ago unfortunately i don't believe that there has been positive forward momentum on that we need people to care about nerdy stuff we need people to care that they are getting um a raw deal from ISPs, you need people to care that they're spending money on poorer service because these companies are encouraged not to compete against each other. Here in Southern California, we have it pretty bad. These maps are drawn out and companies do not step over their lines. So, I mean, even if there are areas that are served by Comcast or Charter or Verizon, actually, I don't think we have any proper Verizon. I think it's just Verizon 5G to home. I don't think we have Fios out here. Someone please correct me on that if I have that wrong. But again, same situation, Michael Peppertech. Across the street, I can see Gigabit. But up in the, the sort of little suburban hills that I'm on, on this side of the street, there's just nothing we can do. There's, we can't run a line. Uh, it, it would, it, we'd love to, to offer you service, but I guess all we can give you is DSL. Terrible, terrible DSL. And... Uh, Net neutrality is not going to address that as an aspect of broadband distribution. But what we need to empower the FCC to do is use better data for collecting uh, usage maps. That's a a part of this this conversation is 
we can't clearly identify where money should go to roll out broadband more effectively because up to now, the maps have been generated by the ISPs. And we just said, okay, yeah, I guess you're telling us the truth. Here's more billions of dollars for your infrastructure. And then we see them do stock buybacks. They're not actually putting this money into the infrastructure like they say they will. And we've paid for fiber to home several times over. <laughs> if we had just, like, if, if, if the internet was a public utility, that money would have gone into just rolling broadband out and rolling fiber out to home. And we would have had the situation that we had in Chattanooga, where a grant from the, uh, who, who was it? A DO, a DOE, Department of Energy, uh, fac uh, facilitated the spread of fiber in Chattanooga. And it worked so well that Republican lawmakers in Tennessee said, no more, and you have to do business with a cable company instead. So Chattanooga is this little island of like 10 gigabit fiber to home. And the whole rest of Tennessee uh, doesn't get to play ball with any of that. They will not let it spread because it's better. <laughs> uh, so James McDonald, can I fill out the net neutrality form if I live in Canada? I mean, you can, but I don't believe that they will weight that as a part of public comments because you would have a Canadian address. And if you falsify an address on a form that goes to the FCC, it doesn't really help the cause. But I, I appreciate um, that you're, uh, you're trying to support it because this is also something that's going to hit Canada as well. Is look at your broadband distribution policy and also look at the market that you have for cell phone carriers and 5G. Um, you guys could use some help too. <laughs> so it, it, you know, being a Canadian and commenting on an American regulator's request for comments probably won't help. But also look at your own country's comment system for regulations. There has to be an, an analogous um, organization that you can send a message to in support of things like net neutrality. Um, and if you don't participate and contribute to those conversations, then your government officials will only hear from the lobbyists that send them lots of money. So get involved. Who wants to talk about some phones? I, I went a little bit longer on that than I had intended to, but to me, the net neutrality conversation is that first critical step in reasonable policy for uh, managing this monster that we call the internet, uh, I, I, I think we could probably you know, start talking about some red boxed devices. This, is, uh, this box says 12R on it, and I wonder what that could be. I'm sure that's the one you guys really want to talk about the most, right, is the 12R? Or, or do we want to spend some time, I'm going to take this little case off of it, or do we want to spend some time talking about this, this sort of like marble jade device here, which is a 12. Um, I don't know. Is, is this something you guys want to talk about? One plus 12? Is, is that? <laughs> Germain. <laughs> Tongue sticking out. It's very, very lewd, very crude of you, Germain. Okay. First up, we've got to get the disclosures out of the way. OnePlus has sent me a pair of devices to talk about on my channel. They have sent me uh, a OnePlus 12 and a OnePlus 12R. OnePlus is still managing a two-stage embargo. 
So there's a lot that I still don't know about the 12 and 12R. I've been using the 12 quite a bit. I've got tons of camera and photography samples, but they have asked that I not turn the device around or show it active. I can talk about the specs, I can talk about my experiences, but I can't show directly software running on the device or what the screen looks like when the device is powered on. So, very early impressions, just me kind of sharing here right now, this is a significant course correction for me on where we were with the OnePlus 11. A brief history of OnePlus devices, the OnePlus 10 Pro was was trying to be a good Pro device, um, but it was saddled with the Snapdragon 8 Gen 1, and it was the first year that OnePlus had kind of severed its relationships with North, North American carriers. So you got a lot of that same, like, oh, OnePluses are too expensive from people that can't seem to do basic math, like, this is cheaper than an iPhone Plus or a Galaxy Plus, but it's too expensive for a competitive device, which is terrible. Um, I feel tech reviewers have turned OnePlus into the replacement LG whipping boy, where nothing they do is ever good enough unless they are so critically overpowered. Like the OnePlus Open leaves no room <laughs> for criticism, and yet you still have people, oh, but it should have had wireless charging. That's a no-buy for me, dog. And you're like, this is the most brutally powerful phone of last year. It is one of the best-built foldable phones that's ever been made. It's got the best cameras on a foldable. It's got crazy, real fast charging. And you're whining about a Qi charger. Cool. You're awesome. Keep doing tech commentary. So the OnePlus 11 was a course correction for a more affordable device. They didn't come out with a, one, a OnePlus 11 Pro. And it was. It was kind of a halfway point. When we had the OnePlus 9 and the 9 Pro, there was a lesser than device and a more powerful device. The OnePlus 11 felt like it was kind of riding the line in between. The OnePlus 12 is basically a OnePlus Open that doesn't open. It is a premium tier device. It's not an Ultra. Like, I wouldn't put this up against, you know, a, a Galaxy Ultra or a, 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 the Oppo Find X7 Ultra. I wouldn't put it in that tier. But it is purpose-built to go up against other devices like Galaxy S24 Pluses. And what they sent over... And so this is, this is where I get a little stuck. This is where there are still some unknowns for me. They've talked about, like, hey, we would appreciate it if you don't, like, disclose pricing and availability. I don't know pricing and availability. They haven't shared that with me. So I can't tell you <laughs> how much it's going to cost or when exactly it will be available to ship. Um, it's just kind of funny. It's like, oh, don't. And you're like, I, I guess I won't because I couldn't if I wanted to. Um, but so much of this has already been confirmed by, it, it's similar enough to the Chinese variants that we know vaguely what's inside of it, and we know vaguely how well that performs. I just can't show you some of the North American, or I guess I should say global uh, differences between this and a Chinese flavor of the OnePlus 12. But when I say this is basically an open that doesn't open, I feel people should understand, like, 
how cool that is. The OnePlus Open is a phenomenally good device. And if you just took everything that made the OnePlus Open a good phone and just made it a regular slate phone, that should, that should deliver some pretty high expectations on what this thing can do. So I can confirm this is running the Snapdragon HN3. It does have a triple camera sensor layout. The lenses are a little different than the lenses on the OnePlus Open. Uh, it does return wireless charging and AirVook, which is the 50-watt wireless charging. But when you plug this into, like, a OnePlus charging brick, you can go from zero to full in, I don't know, roughly 25, 30 minutes, depending on, you know, what state. I know on the OnePlus 11, I, I let it get to power discharge where it couldn't boot, and it took 33 minutes all told, it took 33 minutes to charge from completely empty wooden boot to 100%. Um, go Starscream. So it's a OnePlus Close then. I, actually, that's pretty good. I, I like, we should call this the OnePlus Closed. Um, no, it, it, it is though. I mean, everything that we've, we've praised and we've enjoyed, the Open is showing us that OnePlus is making its own flavor of device. It is uniquely OnePlus. It's not stock Android. It's, you know, Oxygen OS, which is built on Color OS, which we talked about all of those new animations and stuff like that. The cameras are brutally competitive. Uh, so many really good ideas happening in that camera strategy. And it's returning things that we lost on the OnePlus 11. Because we didn't get a OnePlus 11 Pro... We lost things like wireless charging, which is terrible, and you really shouldn't use it. Um, if you have real fast charging, then it's kind of stupid to spend a ton of money on putting coils all over your house when you could just have really good fast chargers that could maybe also charge your laptops and pull double duty and then charge the phone faster and cooler. Because if you have like these lame 15-watt wireless chargers, it's heating up your phone more over a longer period of time, which is going to wear out your battery faster. That's bad. That's bad for us. It's bad for the environment. It's bad for energy policy. It creates more e-waste. And then when you do decide to get rid of those older wireless chargers, it's so much more junk that ends up in a landfill than just using a USB-C cable. But I digress. Some people seem to think they're nifty. I can't see any positive to using wireless chargers. But in addition to that, I'm <laughs> sorry, I get so spicy on that one. I, I, I like what you like, I guess. <laughs> You get to the end of those YouTube videos and like, but I don't know, guys. What do you think? Is this something you like? Oh, drop a comment down below this video. No, I'm telling you, wireless charging is dumb. <laughs> but on the USB port, we do have uh, proper, not only proper USB 3, but video output. So video output returns. I'm really excited to see that. It was a great feature to have on the OnePlus 10 Pro. I was so sad when the OnePlus 11 lost it, and now it's back. So if I take a pair of you know, XR glasses or I plug this into um, an external display or a TV or a portable monitor, you will get a video signal out to the device. And then just as like a, a fun little quirk of design, I kind of like the new button layout. So you've got a power button and volume rocker on the same side, and then the uh, notification switch, that slider is on the opposite side. And it's not a huge deal, but some phones lay these out in ways where I go to turn the, the, the phone off or the screen off, 
and I accidentally will trigger a screenshot because the volume is on the other side from the, uh, the power button. The other thing that's really good about this new button arrangement is how high up the power button is. The, the power button is, is pretty high up on the device, so if I put this in a phone mount, I can get really close to the power button, and the phone is basically balanced. So when I use my tripod mount, I can clip this phone in and not hit the power button, but I don't have it like stuck way out on the side, which makes it a lot easier to kind of aim and position if you want to use your phone on a tripod. So um, let me, uh, let me kind of dig through a couple comments or questions here. Um, that's the OnePlus 12. We also have the 12R, but just with the OnePlus 12, 8 Gen 3, they sent over a review unit with 16 gigs of RAM and 512 gigs of storage space. I would like to see in the comments a OnePlus with 16 gigs of RAM and 512 gigs of storage. Where do you think that's going to line up against a Galaxy S24 Plus in terms of price? I don't know. They won't tell me. So I would love to hear your speculation what do you think Samsung's going to charge for a phone with less RAM and less storage than what OnePlus is currently delivering? Let me take a drink of water and then get in, into, the, uh, into the comments. Oh, man, there's, there's a bunch. Do, do, do. <laughs> Michael Peppertack, we want the Juan model, the one that's jaded. <laughs> uh, Simon says, no, Jermaine uh, will more, <laughs> Jermaine's more green than the OnePlus 12. He's so jealous. <laughs> Zane is saying, let me see that 12R. We're going to cover the 12R in just, just a bit here. Um, let's see. Give me the green one. Give me the green one. I'm seeing a bunch of people talk about the green one. It's jade, jaded, get it? <laughs> yeah, Michael Peppertech, OnePlus pulled a Microsoft, except you could actually turn it on, but can't show it on. I, I understand, I get it, but it is so silly to me, and it's so regressive when these companies put out these regional embargoes. Because it's like they're acting like if you're into tech, you won't go and look at a review of a device from another region. There's a lot you can already learn about the OnePlus 12 because the Chinese edition is out. And now we're just getting into those particular parts of what's going on with the global ROM and with the software that's more for North Americans and whatever kind of ecosystem OnePlus might be trying to create. I can tell you the on-device AI tools are really cool and I will be very happy to show you them when I can. But of all the companies that are making these claims about AI, I am more impressed with the companies that are doing on-device AI, uh, generative AI and language learning model stuff, and I'm becoming less and less impressed with, I have got this video, and now I will send this video up to a server, and then the server will do the AI, and then bring the video back down to my phone. Whoa, isn't that amazeballs? Not that amazeballs. Uh, let's see. Uh, Ghost Star Scream, is the R the new T? I don't know, but I don't think so. 
I feel 12R and 12 are like OnePlus 9 and OnePlus 9 Pro. And some years we've seen, like in the, the, the 7 generation, we saw OnePlus 7 and OnePlus 7 Pro, but not every region got both phones. And then later, we also got OnePlus 7T and OnePlus 7T Pro. And again, not every region got the same, got, got the same phones. Just like Xiaomi, I think T-Series is going to represent something different. I don't know if OnePlus is going to put out a T-Series. They might stick with just the two-device strategy. We'll have to see. It would be exciting to me if we just got OnePlus R, OnePlus Number, and then OnePlus Open later in the year. And I think that's a great way to kind of keep people excited about what's going on with OnePlus over the course of the year. And it's really easy to explain what that lineup looks like. That's my guess. I have no inside information on how that might go down. But there's still potential for a T-Series if if they decide they want like a mid-year refresh. Um, do, 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 uh, Nord, oh, uh, Michael Corcoran's asking if I've had any recent experience with Nords. I really haven't. JGJ saying Nords only get one year of updates. We're going to be doing better than that on the OnePlus 12. Um, let's see. <laughs> Go Starscream. So it's a OnePlus close. I thought that was funny. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Charger alone is probably a $30 value. Um, the Warp 65 charger is still my favorite. So this comes with the newer, this is the same Warp charger that was with the Open. That's why I'm holding this up, because this isn't the charger that came with my OnePlus 12. This is the charger that came with my OnePlus Open. Same, same charger, though. And here in the United States, you can kind of count on a pretty solid 80-watt charging, which you can miss me with Samsung and Apple. When they're like, oh, it's got super fast charging. And you're like, it's 30 watts. (laughs) That's not super fast. That's really slow in this day and age. That is horrifically slow. This is on a OnePlus Open or a OnePlus 12, OnePlus 11, OnePlus 12R. All right. Let's just do this. I can't show you it, but let's see. I let my OnePlus 12 go a couple days. Oh, no, it is at 78%. I did have it kind of topping off. I had it plugged into my computer to get photo samples. So uh, 78%, that's not really much of a test. I I was going to do, let's do this live and see how fast it goes. But it really is like 10 minutes, and you have a whole extra day of runtime. And that charger is in the box. The thing that makes me sad is... um, OnePluses, unlike uh, Vivos or Xiaomi's, no longer come with cases in the box. I think it would be nice just to have a basic clear bumper just to start you off. But I can't hit OnePlus too hard when they have the fastest charging in North America and the fastest charger is included in the price of the phone. So thankfully, uh, I forget what company it is. The same company that made my terrible bumper for the OnePlus 11 also puts out a bumper for the OnePlus 12. And I had this on order before I had the OnePlus 12 come in. It's a $7 piece of plastic. Um, So I've just been using it with that. But as soon as the OnePlus cases come out, I'm going to get something a little nicer for the OnePlus 12. Ron Guido, with the bigger battery, it seems like it might take a few extra minutes. 
you're, you're not going to notice it. Because the other thing that changes your relationship with a phone that has fast charging is you're not concerned about getting to 100%. The charging speed from 20% to 80% is so shockingly fast that you kind of just use it in that window, which is actually better for your battery than always kind of trickle charging it all the way up to 100%. I don't plug in overnight. I, I only plug in when I absolutely need to. And in even in the most like severe situations, like say I can only plug it in for five minutes. Five minutes can give me a whole afternoon of runtime. It's that fast at charging. So it, even though that this does have the slightly larger battery and it needs the slightly larger battery because the 8 Gen 3 is more powerful than the 8 Gen 2, but it also will use a bit more juice at the high end of the performance of both of these phones. Um, it's less than 10%. It's less than a 10% difference in battery capacity going from the 11 to the 12. So it probably is noticeable. If you have like the 11 and the 12 side by side and you plug both in, you let them charge from completely empty to completely full, I'm sure the OnePlus 11 is gonna do that a little bit faster, but we're, we're talking about a total charge from zero to 100 in, in roughly 30 minutes. Maybe that means that the OnePlus 12 does it in 31 minutes. It's less than 10%, so it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I genuinely haven't tried setting them side by side by that because it's, it's so fast. <laughs> um, let's see. I'm trying to get through, I'm trying to catch up to the rest of these comments. Hey, uh, oh, Simon says, no, that's yeah, kind of a funny joke. And whenever I complain about other YouTubers and stuff. <laughs> uh, Simon says Hypno says $250 more <laughs> for a Galaxy S24 than the OnePlus, OnePlus 12. Here's the other thing that's making me really anxious. And I wrote an, an editorial. You can catch it on somegadgetguy.com. But if Samsung comes out and says base model Galaxies will come with 8 gigabytes of RAM, that is Samsung admitting that they don't see a future for their phones with on-device AI. I don't know that generative AI is going to be a big deal. I really don't. And I'm very skeptical that uh, AI can be another rug pull like NFTs. Might be another just investor scam. But if you think language learning model interactions on your phone or generative AI or image manipulation or video editing things on your phone are going to be a big deal, 8 to 12 gigs of RAM on a Galaxy S24 means that you're going to have to flip your Galaxy sooner over the next couple of years as AI becomes more a part of our daily lifestyle interactions. Uh, when we did the MediaTek conference, TK and I got to sit down with MediaTek engineers and they were like, yeah, if you unpack this language learning model, it could roughly be 30 gigs of RAM. The only reason it's not is because we're using this crazy new compression to squish all this stuff down. So starting with 16 gigs of RAM, even though you know 16 gigs of RAM has no impact on your daily driver smartphone needs, that means if AI takes off, you have more room to do more stuff with language learning models, with uh, parameters, and with um, 
like tokens and all that stuff that now goes into our AI conversations. Um, Ron Guido saying $150 more. I kind of feel like storage to storage, MSRP to MSRP, I would not be surprised to see a $100 difference. So whatever OnePlus sells at 128 256 or 512 is roughly within a $100 price window against a Galaxy S24. But I seriously doubt any Galaxy S24 is going to come with 16 gigs of RAM. Vazikos <laughs> um, is saying, I'm sorry, but the rumored telephotos on the S24 and S24 Plus remain unchanged. It's simply a fail from Samsung. I can't wait to see reviewers comparing them with OnePlus 12 and do the mental gymnastics. If you want a sneak peek at what the OnePlus 12 cameras can do, you can go to patreon.com slash somegadgetguy and look up my camera deep dive on the OnePlus Open. And I'll spoil a little bit of that. These cameras are stonking good. They're just genuinely really good cameras for a phone, let alone a foldable phone. It's very similar to what we have on the OnePlus 12, except the OnePlus 12's telephoto sensor can focus a little closer than the Opens can. So if you've been following my coverage on the Vivo X100, you might have been seeing these incredible macro shots that I've been taking with the new Vivo. That has all been coming from the new telephoto sensor, and it's not exactly the same, but the OnePlus 12 is pretty close. <laughs> So Malik is saying, I think OnePlus will drastically undercut Samsung, especially with trade-in deals. I would be shocked if OnePlus doesn't come, come out swinging with trade-in deals. They went hard on the OnePlus Open, where it was basically like any phone, any condition, take $200 off the price of the Open. I feel we'll see something similar like that come for the OnePlus 12 also. Let's see. Aditya is saying OnePlus max spec $1,200. Sammy S24 Ultra not maxed out $1,200. Maxed out around $1,600. So I would... Okay, so here's the thing. I, I still would not pit a OnePlus 12 up against a Galaxy Ultra. A Galaxy Ultra is a note. It is a productivity diesel truck of a workhorse phone, and it's okay for content creation. It is all about, you know, pulling out that S Pen, getting notes done, getting spreadsheets and documents worked on, plugging in, having decks. The Ultra is a Note. The Note 24 is going to be a beast of a work computer. The OnePlus 12 is head-to-head, feature-for-feature, design-for-design, perfectly uh, built to go up against an S24+. Plus. An S24 Plus has nothing to do with a Note 24. They are not the same phone. They should not be called the same thing. They have different screens, different camera sensors, different features, S Pen connectivity, different battery capacities, different resolutions on the display. They should not be conflated as being part of the same lineup. That is a horrible 
trick of marketing manipulation from Samsung where they get all the influencers to go out there and say, look how great the S24 Ultra is, knowing that a bunch of consumers are going to go to their carriers and say, I want an S24. And then they'll say, hey, we've got this one. It's real cheap. And they'll be like, the YouTuber said the S24 was the best, so I'll get the cheapest S24, and that'll be the best of the cheap phones. And they have nothing to do with each other. They are completely different animals. So I think the fair comparison is S24 Plus against OnePlus 12. And I think just like we've seen in years past, that is going to be a very strong comparison for OnePlus in terms of overall price to performance. Uh, Let me hide this. Barry Johnson, I think it will be $9.99 to match Samsung, but when you order the 16512, it will most likely be on sale for $8.99 during pre-orders. I think that's a pretty solid guess. I'm hoping, again, they have not told me, I'm hoping that OnePlus dumps 256, I mean, sorry, dumps 128. (laughs) I'm hoping OnePlus dumps 128 as the starting storage. In North America, sell a 256 and a 512 and then just let it go. Or if you have a 128, maybe that's where you put a 12R. You know, if you need the less expensive SKU, that's a, a different kind of consumer. I'm hoping that, that the 12 in the United States just starts at 256. Um, well, see, Michael Peppertech, this is what's tricky. So Michael Peppertech is correct. We can look up international pricing on the Chinese variant. So uh, if you look up the OnePlus 12 on Giztop, Michael Peppertech is saying it's $699 for the base model, $799 for the 16 gig 512 if we go by Giztop. Typically, not always, but typically, when we see global distribution um, for these other Chinese variants, when they start going wide, there seems to be about a $100 global ROM fee. Like we saw this with um, Xiaomi. Like you can get a Xiaomi 13 Ultra Chinese edition for cheaper than a a global, a a Xiaomi 13 Ultra global. Actually, can you still get the global? Actually, the last time I tried to look up the 13 Ultra, I'm not sure that the the global really uh, was distributed much internationally. Anyway, I digress. Um, But Every time we see that shift from a Chinese edition to a global edition, there's about a $100 extra fee. And if we apply that, then I still think we're in kind of Barry's territory where Barry's saying he thinks a 512 gig phone will cost $899 on some kind of pre-order or launch sale. And that's kind of the price that we expect, even though we know the MSRP is going to be higher. Um, Let's see. Yeah, and Michael Corcoran, I was disappointed. Pixel still has 128 gig in the flagships. I can make 128 gig work on my 6 Pro, but only because I have so many phones and many of them have SD cards. If I only used one phone, no way. So Marie, we just got her the Pixel 8. We could not do 128 gig for my wife's Pixel 8 because she's either had phones with memory card slots or phones that have already been a tier of storage up. The only time she was able, she was ever coasting on 128 was when she had the Pixel 4a 5G, and that phone got maxed out. So even for her, shooting photos and videos of Lex, 128 is a no-go. <laughs> Gormlord, I know that the OnePlus Open has DisplayPort out. Is that the OnePlus standard? Again, it is on the OnePlus 12. 
OnePlus 12 returns video out through the USB-C. Um, oh, Tech Love and Mama's waving to everybody. Hey, Tech Love and Mama, what's up? Ooh, Michael Peppertech, I need to do that. Tudia has their merge case, uh, merge grip case out. It's definitely better than the inexpensive plastic bumper that I'm using right now. <laughs> Um, Jman150, do you think 12 gigs should be the base for RAM? Um, I, I genuinely don't have a philosophical problem with 8 gigs of RAM on even a premium tier device if we're assuming that the majority of the use on that device is going to be more communicator and smartphone-y types of things. This is where we have a humongous gulf of consumer education. The the second you start driving a phone harder for more compute tasks, you know, the extra 50% uh, 50 more RAM, that helps the overall performance of what these devices can do. That helps step up if you're going to edit a TikTok directly on the phone that shot the video for your TikTok. You will get that done faster on a device with better support for these kinds of features. Um, I think 12 is still a premium amount of RAM for just doing smartphone and gaming things. It's even into more advanced desktop modes that we're still, Android is still not really utilizing more than eight gigs of RAM well for heavy multitasking situations. We hope that over the next year or two, Android gets a bit more aggressive at allowing users to really play with multiple apps going up all the time. This is the tricky part of this transition. When we talk about AI, and AI is being done on device, you need a ton more RAM to facilitate a good user experience on device. When the AI is moved up to the cloud, you need a better data connection to facilitate a good user experience with AI. So I can't easily put a number out there. I genuinely don't know. I genuinely don't know if AI will take off and become a consumer feature that people care about. Even if they don't know this is AI, if they think, oh, my phone gets so much smarter and I can talk to it and do these other things and it opens up this potential and I can say, hey, draw me a picture of this and then it does. Right now, it's kind of an unknown for a lot of consumers if that's happening on the device or if it's happening on a server. We don't, consumers don't understand the experience and a lot of techies fundamentally do not understand these differences. But when you do the AI locally, it needs so much more power. It needs so much more storage. It needs a ton more RAM. So if you think AI is going to be something you're going to want to play with over the next several years, you need to overbuy RAM today because we can't upgrade the RAM in our phones. 16 gig is going to feel claustrophobic in two years if AI explodes. And we're doing a ton of computational edge or gen AI on device. Even 16 is going to feel a little lean. Top spec OnePlus 12 in China has 24 gigs of RAM on it. And we should all laugh unless you do believe in the future of AI. 
If you believe in the future of AI, that is the number that uh, executives at MediaTek started talking about when we talked about uh, compression for models using uh, Gen AI on device. Well, if you unpack an LLM or some kind of uh, you know content creation AI plugin, yeah, it might need 20 gigs of RAM <laughs> to do all of that work with all of your data being compressed. So yeah, we can mock it. You'll never touch 24 gigs of RAM in daily operation just using your phone to do traditional smartphone things. But two years from now, that OnePlus 12 might age so much better <laughs> than like a Galaxy S24. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's heavy. So I, I, I don't know. I really don't. I don't know if 12 is now what we should expect. I know Google's going with 12, but a lot of their newer stuff is not on device. It's server side. I, I think Samsung will make it sound like 12 gigs of RAM is some premium add-on feature, but I, I genuinely can't put a good number on how much RAM I think a device should have. Um, so Golan, uh, it seems to be that OnePlus 12 will be the flagship device with the most affordable periscope for the global market. It depends on region. But uh, an X100 Pro might go toe-to-toe with OnePlus in some regions. And you'll have to make a choice there between different sensors and different focal lengths for what you care about. But it, I'm saying, like, the, the shots that I've been pulling off with the OnePlus 12 telephoto have been very good. They've been very competitive. I might say now that I kind of like the cameras a, a little better on the X100 Pro... I don't think that's shocking. I love that one-inch sensor, and I love what Vivo does with their uh, computational processing. But in practical operation, especially telephoto to telephoto, it's pretty good. They're pretty close. I like it a lot. The SGGQA podcast is brought to you in part by Me Audio. So here's the deal. If you've ever seen me in a live stream or in an interview or some other kind of video, you've probably seen me wearing some fancy earbuds. For the last couple years, my work buds have been almost exclusively from me audio. Excellent drivers, fantastic accessories, and both my wife and I had our ears scanned by the folks at me audio for custom molded ear tips. Super comfy. The MX line of Pro in-ear monitors is one of the easiest lineups to understand, starting at $60 and built around actual professional use. Detailed sound and durable construction, but also with some fun options like customizable faceplates. Even if you're not working on stage or in studio, Pro solutions like these are fantastic audio options, and they don't need to break the bank. And the company also supports a lineup of consumer gear with options for true wireless and noise-canceling Bluetooth earbuds, adapters for TVs to stream your audio to nicer headphones, and headsets for kids to help control the volume on fresh, developing ears. I can't stress that last one enough. We have to start kids out with healthier listening habits. It's a great combo, high-quality audio gear built by a team of folks with recording-grade use in mind, but at consumer-friendly prices. 
But of course, I can do you one better. If you shop the kit at meaudio.com and use promo code SOMEGADGETGUY at checkout, you can save an additional 10% over their already competitive prices. Once again, meaudio.com, M-E-E, audio.com. Shop some fun kit, promo code SOMEGADGETGUY at checkout, 10% off. Keep your ears and your wallet happy at the same time. I want to thank the folks at MeAudio for hooking up the promo code. Now, let's get on with the show. Yeah, Michael Peppertech, but this is kind of what's what's a bit of an unknown. The S23 Plus is $1,200 for the 512. If OnePlus follows the pricing for the OnePlus 11, the 512 gig OnePlus 12 is $350 to $400 less. But the OnePlus 12 is a more premium device than the OnePlus 11, it does feature the brighter, the new OLED. That's going to cost. It has substantially better camera sensors and a periscope sensor. That's going to cost more. It, see, this is what's tricky. And I have a video. I think when the final embargo actually lifts, I'm, I'm going to lead with a OnePlus 12 versus OnePlus 11. Because if the OnePlus 12 existed at the same time as the OnePlus 11, it wouldn't be an 11. It would be a OnePlus 11 Pro. They're, they're still the numbered phones. It's 11 and 12. But the 11 feels more like a downgraded phone, a good premium but sort of, you know, sort of mainstream pricing for a phone. And the OnePlus 12 feels like a return to the Pro. So I would at least add a hundred dollar difference, maybe more comparing the 11 to the 12 because they're not the same tier. They're not the same animal. They don't belong in the same market, even though we've seen some of the pricing coming out of China and all these other factors and all these other aspects. Um, they're different devices in terms of where they should sit in the market. Um, Ron Guido, does, RAM, does using RAM expansion work well with AI? So basically, that's just swap space. Every computer has swap space. You have a hard drive, and when you run out of RAM, there's a penalty, a performance penalty, as you move temporary information to an SSD and then sort of get it back through the RAM to then compute on whatever it is that you're working on. And no, I would not count on swap space to be an adequate solution for how... Because, again, it's the consumer expectation is you want to give it a prompt and then have something pop up on your screen like magic. And when it takes longer and longer and longer, you see, like, the spinning icon, like, it's not a good experience. And consumers aren't going to keep using it if it slows way down or it's dramatic. there's a dramatic performance hit. So I don't think swap space or RAM expansion is really going to be the solution for devices sold this year with 8 to 12 gigs of RAM aging out of the AI conversation. Um, Go Starscream, are sites like Giztop a discount store? No, but they're buying local and they're shipping direct from, from China as to how those devices are sold in China. So also right now, it helps if the dollar is doing well in the economy because then your um, currency exchange works out in your favor. Um, they're, they're not discount. It's just, we also have to appreciate how much it costs to bring a device over here to the United States proper. You have to have an infrastructure for replacement parts. You are working in a market that is not 
as accessible. You don't have the same inroads for distribution. And all of that adds to the cost of a device. So in, in the EU, you can usually count on about a $100 difference between a Chinese version and a global ROM edition. Um, JGJ, do you keep photo quality on 4K or are consumers expected to drop quality down to 1080p, 1440p? I'm not sure I understand what you're asking. I shoot all of my video at 4K, but I keep all of my photo and RAW files at full res, so 12 megapixels or 50 megapixels, depending on what I'm shooting them in. Um, I just like if you're oh if you're talking about phones with like 128 gig of storage, then yeah, what they're probably counting on are is at some point you upload all that stuff to Google Photos and then say like I don't know compress it to good enough quality and then all of your memories are wrecked and you never get that data back. I guess if that's what you're asking. <laughs> uh, let me get through here. <laughs> JGJ, why get merged into the AI Borg? I don't think it's merely a fad, but I would like a different paradigm. So I think AI will eventually become something commonplace and boring. But even for it to become something kind of commonplace and boring, it still uses significantly more power and resources than just sort of the traditional um, smartphone things that we've done in the past. Like, just take an AI assistant versus the previous smart assistants that we've had on phones and the ability to unpack more and more data in a language learning model triples your RAM usage. So when you talk to, you know, your Android phone's assistant and you give it a basic query, basically just runs off to the web and does a search for you. If you want to have an organic back and forth discussion about things as it's pulling information from data sources and it's understanding sort of the, uh, the way that you talk, that assistant on device needs to unpack a ton more information than what uh, the more traditional assistants we've used in the past, like Siri. Techies don't seem to be properly primed for how big this stuff gets for it to do something that seems kind of simple, and it often gets this stuff wrong. So we all have a chuckle, oh, AI hallucinated again. It's obviously not understanding what I'm talking about. But just to get to that point, you needed like three or four times more RAM and newer, faster neural processing cores and a much beefier CPU. Maybe GPU compute has to be done through the GPU on device too. That's also another reason why we're seeing battery capacities expand because you need to put all that stuff on a chip that is going to draw more power from your battery. All of this gets more complicated. So if we want the next phase of Bard or Assistant or Siri or whatever to get or a Microsoft Copilot, we want them to get better and faster and still have some um, pretend conversation about privacy, then we need to significantly bump up the specs on these devices. Yeah, Michael Peppertech, I'm telling you, man, the international prices are, are, are crazy. Or I should say the Chinese import prices are crazy. The 24 gigabytes of RAM, one terabyte model of the OnePlus 12 is $999 on Giztop. 
That's the same price as the 8 gigs of RAM, 256 gigabyte S23 Plus. And then compare that to an iPhone 15 Plus. And there is no world in which an iPhone 15 Plus is going to be a better phone than this. The iPhone 15 Plus is an embarrassing option to put up against a OnePlus 12. The triple cameras, the better display, the higher peak brightness, the return to the notification slider, um, the, uh, not only the faster wired charging, but faster wireless charging. It has an IR blaster if you want to use it as universal remote. And it's going to come with more storage than an iPhone 15 Plus. Again, this conversation has been wonderfully consistent from OnePlus. From the OnePlus 8 Pro to today, if you do a feature-for-feature -feature comparison against a Galaxy S or an iPhone, the OnePlus is going to win. It's going to be a better dollar-to-performance and dollar-to-feature than anything Apple or Samsung can put out. But you've got a bunch of techies out there that just want someone that they can know will lose in the grand popularity conversation. So they can go, oh, well, it's not good enough. Better luck next year, OnePlus. The Samsungs are going to be more popular. And I guess that'll make me more money on my channel. It's not about the better phone. <laughs> it's not about the better device. It's only about whether or not that creator can make more money on what their video production's costs are. Yeah, my voice is getting real fuzzy, so we should talk about the 12R just a little bit, because I have not used that one as much. But um, I do want to just kind of catch some of these other... <laughs> Simon says, if no. Enough with the slow progress. I demand Jarvis, and I demand him now. Remember how revolutionary Cortana was? It's still like something I can't quite replicate on any other smart assistant. But I had a Windows phone. And I, I spoke into the Windows phone and I said, remind me to buy bread. And it asked, when and where? And I said, I forget exactly how it phrased it, but it was like, do you want to remind you, do you want me to remind you at a specific store? And I said, any grocery store. And then the next time I was driving by a grocery store, I got a pop-up on the screen don't forget to buy bread. And that was such an amazing interaction to have with the phone. And you can do similar things with all of these other assistants, but it was never as direct as what we had on the Windows phone flavor of Cortana. And I want that back. And I want to be able to do things like all through voice and maybe even over a pair of headphones initiate the assistant on my phone, tell it to open a specific app and message a specific person with a comment or to reply to a message that I got on Telegram. I can't do it. And I know that this first wave of like, oh, these new AI capabilities are all just going to be stapled into just a limited number of Google apps on these phones. And I need a smart assistant to start doing things in the other services that I use. It uh, makes me so sad. Vasikos, Windows phone shill right here. <laughs> um, from Jermaine, the OnePlus 12 gets a charger, a much faster charger included, uh, and, a, and a case possibly. No case on the North American OnePlus 12. 
So the OnePlus 12 I have does have a bumper, but I had to buy that bumper myself. It does have the crazy fastest charger included in the price of the phone in the box. So as soon as you hear someone say, well, I mean, it's like, you know, you want to compare. It's the best OnePlus, so you should compare it against the best Samsung. They're trying to rig a win for Samsung, right? They're not playing fair. They're not comparable devices. However, people want to use the word comparable. That's not what it is. But then they'll also give Samsung a pass because to buy the fastest charger for a Samsung should be another $30 added on to the price of the phone. And they're not going to do that, oh, but I mean, it takes like twice or three times as long to charge a Samsung as it does to charge a OnePlus. And I had to spend an extra $30 or $40 to get a charger for the Samsung to charge it at one-third the speed as my OnePlus that came with the charger in the box. So, um, real quick, because I haven't spent as much time on it, the OnePlus 12R is in a very precarious position, IMO. Where is my... This is my OnePlus 11. I should have pulled the OnePlus 11 out. Um, I'm going to keep the OnePlus 11 in this roughed up bumper case. Um, I can't remember the name of the company that I got this case from. This is the OnePlus 11, and this is the OnePlus 12. And uh, This is the OnePlus 11. This is the OnePlus 12R. The 12R is going to be very similar to the OnePlus 11, but we are going to see some camera downgrades. So the cameras on the OnePlus 11 really aren't as nice as the cameras on the OnePlus 10 Pro, but they're pretty good. They're capable, they're functional, daily driver, snapshotty kinds of cameras. They're fine. The OnePlus 12R is going to be a small step down from that. But they're both with, uh, they're both featuring Snapdragon 8 Gen 2s. So this is where I'm saying that the, the OnePlus 12R is going to be in a slightly precarious position because you can find some stonking good sales on the OnePlus 11. So if you say, say you sacrifice a year of software support, which, you know, we kind of add $100 on for extended software support. Every time we've seen significant increases to support and parts and software, it's about a $50 to $100 price increase. Very similar performance, uh, similar chipsets, slightly better cameras, and a year less software support. I kind of feel if we're looking at the lineup of OnePlus devices right now, it kind of goes 12R, then 11, then 12, then open. And that's the continuity of OnePlus devices. The OnePlus 11 still existing on OnePlus's, you know, store right now makes it, it it's all going to come down to what the OnePlus 12R actually costs. So when the 12R launches, I would imagine that the OnePlus 11 is going to dry up pretty quick. Because we also know that OnePlus is not manufacturing at the same kind of scale that when they had uh, a T-Mobile partnership. So because they don't have carrier distribution, they're not making as many of these phones to just sit on store shelves. These orders go through in tighter batches to fulfill the more immediate demand from people ordering the product. So when 12R launches, I would imagine 11 is going to vanish pretty quick. But if, you can, if you're thinking about the 12R, see if you can catch how much it's going to cost, because I don't know what it's going to cost, 
and you might want to opt for the 11 over the 12R depending on what your needs are. But the 12R, depending on its launch price and depending on sales, is going to be a monster daily driver option. The 8 Gen 2 is an incredible chip. We're going to talk about the 8 Gen 2 for years to come in the same way that we used to talk about the Snapdragon 865. The, the performance per watt, the price to performance is phenomenal. So this is going to be a great option to pick up as a very nice premium daily driver phone, but it's not at the upper tier of an expensive premium device. I just kind of feel like the OnePlus 11 is better in a number of ways. <laughs> so it's tricky. It's tricky to say like, oh, well, this is, this is going to be for this person and that's going to be for that person. The, the differences are going to be very subtle, but I think if you care about something like slightly better camera performance, the 11 might... You know, what's, what's also kind of funny is I also really like that the 12R now also includes the same power button and volume rocker configuration where the OnePlus 11 has the volume rocker immediately opposite the power button. And so while the OnePlus 11 had my SIM card in for a while, I've got a lot of screenshots on this OnePlus 11 that I did not mean to take. <laughs> you just go to hit the power button and you feel the vibration. I took another screenshot. <laughs> it's so funny. Oh, yeah, so Jermaine, and I love when people bring this up. Jermaine uh, says, oh, and those lovely Snapdragon 870s is also one of those great chips. The 865 went on for th- three generations. There was the 865, there was an 865 Plus, and then there was an 870. And they're all fundamentally the same core configuration at the same fabrication process. The 870 is just a better binned variant of the 865. And Qualcomm kept it around because we want these high-performance, price-disruptive, akin to a flagship killer kind of phone. And the 870, I, I want to say that there was even a tablet that got launched late last year that still had, it had a Snapdragon 870. Because that chip is still phenomenal, and it's still ridiculous overkill for daily driver average consumer needs. The HN2 is going to have legs. The HN2 is going to be a chip that ages phenomenally well over the next four years. It is a beast of a processor. It is an incredible performance per watt. It's got a great GPU on board. It is incredible compute power overkill compared against what we think of as a mainstream smartphone need. I have pulled off synthetic benchmark tests on 8 Gen 2s that are besting 12th Gen Core i5s. I have a laptop over here with a Core i7 that is doing direct battle in synthetic benchmarks against 8 Gen 3s. So we're, you know, we're about a generation behind. You know, Intel has 13th Gen out for a lot of laptops. But I need that to sink in. The performance that we will see on a Snapdragon 8 Gen 3 is going to be a higher, a higher battery penalty than on the 8 Gen 2. 8 Gen 2 would often float around 6 watts, maybe 7 watts in really graphics-intense processing. You see the people who benchmark with games like Genshin Impact. 
So the CPU performance, especially when you kick it up into the high performance mode and the phone does start to run pretty warm to the touch on heavy um, processing compute tasks, and I'm talking like 4K video rendering and batch processing insane numbers of raw files, not, oh, I opened up the TikTok and then the phone got hot in my hand. No, it's doing fine there. At around 6 watts of power draw, this phone is competing against a 12th gen Intel Core i7 U series processor. Not an H, not one of the beefier processors, one of the U. And our Geekbench and, and synthetic benchmark scores are pretty close. Now, do we believe that a U-series Core i7 is coming in at 6 watts? I don't think we do. <laughs> I think that laptop is drawing quite a bit more juice than 6 watts to power that CPU in that laptop. I really like this laptop. I'm going to have a video out on it very, very soon. But if we're, if we're trying to play this game of performance per watt and what you do with you know, sort of these uh, pocketable compute devices. Um, the HN3 is just ridiculous. The HN2 is ridiculous. The HN1 was a travesty. It's hilarious just how, how much compute power we're completely wasting on these little uh, pocket computers. I totally, yeah, I'm seeing other people like popping up. Like I have an 865, I have an 870. Um, It's, they're going to be great. Um, Simon Says Hypno says the Snapdragon 888 was the toastiest of chips. 8 Gen 1. The 888 was concerning. And I put out a video, especially with the, um, the Galaxy S21, talking about how, oh, I don't know, this isn't a great performance upgrade over the year before. And then Samsung was like, hold my beer. We can make an even worse chip. And the HN1 is not going to age very well. In the pantheon of smartphone chips, it will not be remembered like the Snapdragon 810 that could melt solder and cause your phones to boot loop. But the HN1 is kind of a close second for an insanely powerful chip that cannot be managed nearly as well. So... um let me just wrap up some of these uh, these uh, comments and notes here. Uh, HN2 will be attractive on the resale market for years. I mean, for years. The deals you're going to get on phones from 2023 are going to be shockingly good. I mean, just like, it's going to be a very difficult conversation to talk about a new phone with an HN3 versus a year-old phone with an HN2 and if you're not into AI or really super graphics intense gaming, I think the HN2 is a better buy. If you're wanting to do more with a phone, get the devices with more RAM and more compute power. If you think your phone's just going to be a communicator, but you still want something nice and still decently powerful, HN2. I, I, this is going to be a really funky year. It's, I'm here for it because that's exciting to talk about that kind of year over year competition. Um, let's see. <laughs> Muppinish Xperia Pro. Ah, flexing. I got that 888. Um, 
<laughs> Umar. Well, yeah, that's kind of the point I was making. People talking about the HN1 being hot when the 808 and the 810 exist. So the 8 Gen 1 will not be remembered like that. But it's not going to be remembered fondly. <laughs> and, and Michael Corcoran, especially now that updates last longer, absolutely spot on. So we did not spend much time talking about the Redmi. Um, I'm just going to point you all to, because my voice is going here, and I, I really would like to make this a longer episode, but I've got to start capping it. Um, the Redmi Note 13... Pro Plus. I have that video out on my YouTube right now. Um, this is a, I think this is another example of building a phone that is designed to feel nicer, but that also comes with some performance compromises considering the price of the phone. So it's a different conversation than like a traditional flagship killer, which has a really beefy processor, but then everything else feels cheap. Uh, the Note 13 Pro Plus feels like a much nicer phone than it is. I mean, we can kind of glean that based on the price. So I've got a full video on that. You can ch- catch that on uh, my YouTube channel or on somegadgetguy.com. Um, I'm really charmed by this phone, but it is coming at a time where I think both Vivo and Xiaomi are flooding the markets with all of these um, mid-ranger competitive devices in the two to $500 range, the little tiny differences from model to model to model as they're putting out phones almost weekly is impossible to, to stay on top of. You know, like when we compare Redmi's against Xiaomi's against Poco's, you see so many little iterations on the same idea. And that is very difficult for a consumer to keep a handle on. And I, I, I know they, they are separate companies. In as much as they can be firewalled against each other, they technically exist as separate entities for different regions. But I really feel like the Xiaomi parent corporation should probably, at some point, make clearer lines or clearer differences between all of their various sub-brands. Because it is incredibly difficult to get a handle on, well, is this the new one or is it better than this one? Is this the faster phone? Do I want a phone that's more powerful or do I want a phone that has a better camera or is it nicer? Like it is, it hurts your brain. (laughs) So full video out, Redmi Note 13 Pro Plus. Uh, I'm so glad that I can finally join this conversation. We can chat about OnePlus 12. I think OnePlus 12 is already shaping up to be one of my favorite North American phones of the year. It replaces so many of the things that I missed on the OnePlus 11. And it's it's coming in with a competitive set of features that I honestly wasn't expecting after the OnePlus 11. So OnePlus 12 is a, is a wonderful return to form. And you're going to see a lot more of it coming up in the next several weeks. And whenever they give us the final go-ahead on reviews and they tell us what the pricing and availability will be, those are the unknowns that we still have when it comes to... Uh, OnePlus in the North American market. But I'm also seriously looking at 12R as a good recommendation. Like for someone like my mom, my mom still uses the OnePlus 6 and she was looking at maybe picking up a Pixel, but something like a OnePlus 12R might be the way to go uh, for her to replace her aged OnePlus 6. So um, let's see. I just want to see if there are any last... Vazikos, I love it when Juan apologizes when the podcast is only two and a half hours long. 
Um, I, no, I would, if it weren't for my voice, I would go an extra 20 minutes just to talk about the red meat, but I can't. Uh, Muppinish, how long does it take you to publish this on Patreon? So the video replay is going to be available immediately on Twitch. Um, the audio, the, the, the audio cut down podcast will probably be up in a couple hours. Unfortunately, I don't have great control over when it publishes after I submit it. So that's why you'll see sometimes like I'll get the replay crew post out like an hour later. And then sometimes it's like the next morning, Hey, replay crew, the podcast is ready to go now. Woo. (laughs) So it's, it's kind of tricky. I don't, I can't predict when it really shows up on your favorite podcast apps or podcast services. Um, but it should be a couple hours from the time I'm done, uh, broadcasting. And then, uh, oh, uh, coming up over the next week, uh, tomorrow, uh, we're going to be, well, actually the whole week, we're going to have people doing some great streams. And I really hope folks are jumping into these conversations. Cause we also have Samsung impact coming up and I am predicting a very iterative year for Samsung with not a lot of confidence in future technologies. I am worried. I'm anxious. I should say I'm anxious that Samsung's going to come out make a whole bunch of bold claims about AI, but then most of it's going to be server side. So look at this amazing thing that the Galaxy can do, but really the Galaxy is taking a photo or a video, sending it up to a server, and then getting a result instead of it's really doing this on the device. Because I don't believe Samsung can account for the performance discrepancies between Qualcomm and Exynos. So the Snapdragon I feel is going to be a much stronger performer than the next Exynos this year over. And I think Samsung's going to want to minimize that disparity. So that's my prediction for Samsung Unpacked. We're going to have a whole crew of really cool techies talking about these announcements. I'm sure that the folks, the, the whole crew, like Barry's in the chat right now, but Barry, Gadget Goddess, Kimmy, um, Easy Computer Solutions, The Tech Preacher, uh, uh, Bionic Scoop. Uh, is going to be in these conversations. Uh, LaShawn, I'm missing people. Ike Talks Tech might, you know, grace us with a stream. Uh, those are the kinds of folks that I really want uh, folks to listen to in this lived-in kind of gadget reviewer conversation. I missed a bunch of people. Oh, and Scott Peachy is back to a more regular streaming setup too. So I would imagine that this would be a week of really good live streams especially for folks who love to kind of jump into these conversations and join chats and really kind of throw elbows in what's going on with all of these tech um, conversations. So uh, expect that on Thursday, TK and I are going to have a conversation about all all the news that's been coming out of these different devices and what's going on at Samsung Unpacked. And uh, we've got a lot. (laughs) We're running headlong into MWC where all this stuff is going to explode all over again. Thank you, Barry. JoJo the Techie is going to be at Unpacked. So I would imagine she's going to have some really fun things to say too. If you're not following all these people on YouTube and across social media, then you're kind of missing some of the fun conversations that are happening around all these new product launches. So uh, folks, I want you to have an amazing week. I want you to do awesome with your technology. I want you to be awesome with your technology. And in the United States today, I hope you have a lovely time just spending some time with family or friends, eating some good food, and also kind of thinking about some of those things that we can do as citizens to help contribute to the conversation and help lift people up 
when we have those opportunities to. I feel like that would be a lovely way to sort of uh, celebrate the memory of an amazing American who lived in our country's past and tried to help uh, raise the boat for all people, raise the levels for all folks in Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So I'll catch you back here next week for another episode of the Monday Morning Tech Chat Show on the SGDQA podcast channel. Be safe, take care of yourself so you can keep taking care of others, and I'll catch you back. Recording voiceover, spoken word, is truly one of my favorite activities. My second favorite hobby is photography. Now, the smartphone might be making us deaf, but we can't deny the awesome power of the phone as a platform for photography and multimedia creation. If you've been looking to improve your mobile photog skills, if you want to produce more professional content, or you're just looking to take your family photos to the next level, I wrote a book to help you out with that. Take Better Photos, Smartphone Photography for Noobs is available on Amazon Kindle. Walking through the basic terminology of photography, covering the settings on your camera, discussing composition and inspiration, and I even include a long list of exercises and challenges to really hone your skills, all with some helpful example photos and diagrams. Search for Take Better Photos, Smartphone Photography for Noobs on Amazon, or use the quick link bit.ly slash betterphotosbook to grab your copy today.